Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host and producer of the Happy Hour, Olga Peters, and I'm really glad for you to all be joining me today. And I want to welcome to the show our guest, John Walters, who is a journalist based in Montpelier and the force behind the Vermont Political Observer. And hello, John. So glad you can be here. Well, thank you for inviting me, Olga. I, I am a poor substitute for Emily Kornheiser, but she is up to her ears in it at the State House these days, more so than usual. It's a very frantic, busy session with a lot of huge issues. So her focus on that is, I would say, even admirable. So you got to settle for me, folks. <laughs> And in the second half of the show, I actually have an update about the show going forward. So stay tuned for that. We'll be talking about in the second half. But in this half, we're going to be talking about, because it never gets old, unfortunately, is housing. Now, John, you've been writing a number of blog posts on um, or pieces on some of the things that are happening in Montpelier right now around housing. I just finished a piece focusing on Windsor County, where I, I spoke to a number of housing folks who are like the town manager of Chester, who is not a housing person, but is now becoming a housing person because that's what Chester needs. Or like the folks at the the Black River Innovation Campus in Springfield didn't really see themselves as landlords, but they're going to be putting in some 24 apartments in the building they own. So for tech entrepreneurs who are trying to get businesses off the ground. So a lot is happening in housing and yet we don't have enough and our homeless population, you know, folks who are, who are losing housing is increasing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What, what from your perspective, John is going on? Are we just in the, it gets worse before it gets better phase or is it just, you know, we don't have the pandemic money anymore. Like, what's happening here? Well, I mean, I would say that the the pandemic had a lot to do with it. We had a ton of federal money that kept everything, you know, allowed us to do a lot of things that we would not normally have the bandwidth to do. And at the same time, I don't think we spent it very well. Hmm. I think it papered over a lot of things that were happening beneath the surface, like, you know, housing. I was looking back at like 2017 when the legislature passed a $37 million housing bond for affordable housing because the need was seen as so acute that we needed to, you know, throw together some funding and get it out there. And it's so much worse now than it was then. And it's up and down. It's it's everything from like not having enough shelter for our homeless. There's a place along the river, um, literally a mile from the state house where there is a tent encampment and there has been all winter. And if that doesn't say it all, I don't know what does, but it's everything from having enough shelter for people to having enough affordable apartments that people aren't constantly sliding into homelessness to like, you know, affordable single family homes for young families to move here and raise kids and put them in schools to even like top end housing, there's not enough. It's everywhere and it's everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, I think to some extent during the pandemic, A, we had federal money to spend and B, we had sort of, we could tell ourselves that our problems were the result of the pandemic. 
mm-hmm. and not the result of forces that went that began well before the pandemic. And obviously, you know, the governor maintained the motel voucher program throughout the pandemic with federal funds. And the kind of unspoken assumption was, well, when the pandemic ends, the need will end. Mm. And it turned out that that was not at all the case. And you not know, even close. He's tried to end the voucher program multiple times. And every time it's like, well, if we do that, all these people are going to be unsheltered. Mm-hmm. And so there's kind of like this cobbled together extension and there's no real policy. There was no policy throughout the last several years of really addressing the shortage of affordable housing. And now, you know, the federal money is almost all spent and we're confronting a huge crisis that is, you know, not only creating a humanitarian humanitarian disaster at the low end of the scale, it's really got a vice grip on our, on our economy. Yeah. You know, employers can't hire because people can't find houses or apartments mm-hmm. to live in. You know, decent jobs are going begging because people can't find apartments. People who have jobs can't even afford an apartment. You know, there's a, a decent number of, there's an appalling number of the homeless who are working. Yeah. They're working full time. And they can't afford a place to live. So we've got this huge crisis. And from my point of view, we have an administration that's pretty much sitting it out. Mm. You know, the governor talked about bold action and addressing this and really made it the centerpiece of his agenda going into this session of the legislature. You know, last fall, his his top people were like doing this huge task force operation to re- really take a universal look at homelessness and housing and everything in between. And they came up with a pretty decent report, which I wrote about a few days ago. But none and that's of that... the presentation you can actually download at your yeah. with Chris Winters and I'm forgetting the other guy, uh, Alex Farrell. And, you know, they, they presented this report, but virtually none of this report is in phil scott's plan Hmm, interesting the basically for all his talk about bold action it has come down to two things it has come down to maybe opening a couple hundred more shelter beds which is like you know a tiny fraction of the need and it's come down to permitting and zoning reform which is a necessary piece of the puzzle, but it's mm-hmm. not the only piece. And yeah. it particularly, it would it would have more effect in the upper end of the scale than on the affordable end of the scale. And he's not committed any substantial amounts of money. In his budget plan, he would spend a lot less money this year on housing than we have in the current fiscal year. Now, that's partly because of the federal money mm-hmm. that we won't have next year. But it doesn't bespeak any sort of real commitment to action. You know, it's like I said, you know, there are a lot of good ideas in this, in this, uh, you know, this uh, special committee on housing and homelessness. They have a lot of good ideas, but the soonest Phil Scott is going to act on any of them is fiscal year 26, you know, starting in July of next year. And so the legislature, including your absent co-host, who is busier than usual, because they are having to try to come up with housing policy on the fly because the administration is not doing its job. And I would love if you would share with listeners, John, what 
you told me when we were chatting before the show about how policy historically yeah. has been developed in the state house, which is one of those things I kind of knew, but I kind of didn't know. So I'd love if you'd walk listeners through that. Well, you know, you think of like the three co-equal branches of government and in terms of like the way the power dynamic is set up, yes, they each have checks and balances uh, on the other, you know, legislative, executive, and judiciary. But the legislature is this little tiny pool of 150, 180 citizens who make less than $10,000 a year to work, you know, insanely long hours. And it's not just during the session. They have virtually no staff. Uh, each committee has one staffer mm-hmm. whose primary job is scheduling witnesses for hearings. Each chamber has one staffer who assists the chamber's leader. They have a, a small office of people who write legislation, legislative council. They have a small group of economists and financial experts, the joint fiscal office. And that's what they got. Mm-hmm. The executive branch has thousands of full-time employees, including, you know, top administrators who supposedly are expert in their field and can call on experts whenever they need. And they have, they're working year-round. So the way this is, is supposed to work, for better or worse, is that the executive branch proposes and the legislature disposes. Mm-hmm. You know, the executive branch comes up with a budget plan and an agenda for the year. And the legislature can, you know, change, tweak, add, subtract. But the the executive kind of provides the baseline because they've got the resources to do it. Right now, you've got committees in the legislature who are taking testimony on reimagining the homelessness services system, which is not something they have the bandwidth to do. And they're having to do that on the fly as they are dealing with everything else that's on their plate. But that's the consequence of the Scott administration, basically, to choose a well-worn metaphor, you know, instead of being on on stage, you know, actively participating, they're sitting sitting in the balcony throwing jujubes. And that's not a responsible position to take. You know, my view of Phil Scott is that he's a nice guy. He's a competent manager, mm-hmm. but he's not a visionary. And yeah. we are in a position on a number of issues where we really need a visionary. And in the absence of a visionary, as long as Phil Scott is governor, in my view, we're going to see drift on a lot of issues. Mm. Uh, and you know, and- we're, we're seeing now that that's becoming a really dangerous thing in terms of housing, yeah. in terms of school funding, property taxes, opioids, homelessness. Yeah you know, the whole school system, which is serving fewer and fewer kids mm-hmm. at a pretty high per pupil cost. And we need some original creative thinking and not just like, hey, we got an incentive program to bring a few hundred more workers to the state. Mm-hmm. As long as they bring their jobs with them. <laughs> and find and build a house on yeah. their way. Anyway, it's not a great situation. And there's a lot of scrambling going on, you know, there was, you know, the governor just signed an education funding reform bill that was rushed through the legislature. H850, um, it's called. And you can tell it was rushed through because it's got such a high number. Yeah. That means 
it was just proposed very recently. The numbering goes up throughout a biennium. So they start last in, in January 23, the first bill was H1 or S1. Mm-hmm. And now they're up to H850. And they're passing H850, which is a major piece of policy change. And the legislature is talking about doing even more to try to fix the property tax system. Yeah. And they've got like no time. You know, we're almost halfway through the session. And and not only do they not have time, but a lot of, um, so 850 is, for folks who maybe haven't heard of it, because it really did, it went through the House really quickly, went over to the Senate really quickly, and the governor, governor signed it. It's repealing the 5% homestead tax rate increase cap that was created by previous legislation, Act 127, uh, which had to do, people have heard us talk about on this show about the per- people waiting study and a lot of the changes that that created. So a lot of towns from what I've seen in the news need help with these tax increases. You know, we're looking at that 20% overall increase in a lot of education funding. The downside to that is a number of schools have already approved their budgets. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think there's money in this bill, um, H850, to pay to reprint ballots. Well, we're a couple of weeks <laughs> away from town meeting. I mean, yeah, uh, but but it's a lot of kind of, you know, it's creating uncertainty for um, a lot of schools and districts, and a lot of schools, at least down in this area, are like, yeah, we got our budgets and we got our cap. You know, Dover needs a new roof. And how are we going to pay for both of those? And for them, it's uncertainty at this point. This is another little piece of the problem that doesn't even make the front page of huge issues. But about, I don't know, 17, 18 years ago, mm-hmm. the, state, the state used to pay a significant amount of the capital expenditure expenses for local schools. Okay, so thank you. I have a memory of that. And stuff like that. They stopped doing that like in the late, 2000s sometimes still governor and that's created a huge and expanding need for school infrastructure and the legislative capital expenditure committees are actually trying to come up with a bill to like restart some of that state funding for schools because there's a huge unmet need that historically we have provided and that's another big lift in a session full of big lifts. Um, mm-hmm. And the schools saw this temporary cap as a way to get in some of these badly needed capital projects, but it has had the backlash consequence of you know property taxes going through the roof, literally, <laughs> figuratively. So this bill is an attempt to kind of patch that hole without really addressing the underlying needs that led to the previous legislation. Mm -hmm. Um, We still have schools, you know, struggling with unmet capital needs and declining enrollment and, you know, property tax base because of the housing shortage that isn't as robust as it, as it could be, as it should be. So they're all interconnected and they, uh, that which makes them even thornier to address. Well, and for a lot of towns, that I've spoken to since who are hit hard by the summer and December floods, mm-hmm. you know, they've actually lost some housing in some cases, which means, or, or 
they're in the process of people are doing buyouts, which is yep. such a double-edged sword because on the one hand, if a piece of infrastructure is getting nailed year after year after year, you don't want to keep it in the flood zone. Like that just is a no duh. However, if that is an entire block of housing, your grand list just went psh, and so your resources just went psh. For my radio listeners, I'm using hand signals and making sound effects. Everything's going down. It's circling. (laughs) (laughs) The city of Barrie has a huge problem with that. And Montpelier got a lot of the headlines from the flood in July Mm -hmm. because our downtown was flooded. And that's picturesque and, you know, all that stuff. Barrie got hit harder in the housing element in the neighborhood residences. And that is creating a huge amount of fiscal uncertainty for them because now, they have more applications for buyouts, meaning people who can't afford or it's fiscally impossible to rebuild the house where they are. So they just want out. And, and fair enough. They've already got more applications for buyouts than the city can afford to pay. Yeah. And if you got get through that, then you've got, you know, your property tax roll has diminished substantially. And, you know, they still have costs and they're still trying to deal with, like, how do we rebuild our city when we don't even have enough money to run the city as it is now? Mm -hmm. So when I was, so for folks who know, I often write articles for Vermont Business Magazine called Economic Overviews. And each month we look at a different county. The printing schedule's off. So for me, it was January and and then it was February. For readers, it will be on a different schedule. But in January, I spoke to folks in Lamoille County. And then this month, I was talking to people in Windsor County. And on the one hand, I was really impressed with the amount, especially in Windsor County, the amount of creativity communities and regions and, and regional commissions and such are putting in to trying to solve the housing problem. But on the other hand, it does feel so piecemeal that, you know, Chester has started a housing commission and they're looking at turning 139 acres or they're going to have a feasibility study to look at turning 139 acres into a new neighborhood of like workforce housing and lower income housing. And that's great because they want a community where people can work locally and live locally. And over at a number of the planning commissions, they're still working through their keys to the valley study, and they're doing a feasibility study to identify new places to put housings in the region. And this is a bi-state region, and I can't wait for this housing study to come out. The hope being if they can pre-identify and pre-vet properties, it will just speed up the development process. So this is all really exciting and I think smart. But the theme that kept coming up over and over again is this feels kind of piecemeal. And we really wish we had more of keys to the valley doesn't count because that is a regional approach. But we need a regional approach. So we're not just doing this town by town so that we can work together as towns and find ways to kind of solve the whole puzzle. What it brings up for me is I feel, and I, I think I've seen it more under the Scott administration, but that might just be because I was paying attention more. We have this tension between we kind of want our local control and yet our economy of scale to get things done is actually at the regional slash state level. And yet 
we have an administration that doesn't kind of want to pay for anything. And it just feels like it's, it's like one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake. <laughs> yep. Yep. And oh, uh, I was hoping you were going to tell me I had that all wrong, John. <laughs> <laughs> and within each community, you have the tension between people who love their community and love the way, love it the way it is and don't want to see it change dramatically. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we kind of need dramatic change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I grew up and lived most of my life in Michigan, which is a very different place in so many ways. It's flat, for one thing. <laughs> uh, I don't think I could handle that. <laughs> it's, you know, it's rare to find a building that's older than about 100 years. Mm. There's, just, there's just not that much that goes back that far. There's not that much history to the place. You know, it's about a, about a 150, less than 200 years old. Wow. Uh, as a state even and it was largely wilderness when it became a state so there is a lot less urgency to preserve and that has a lot of negative effects mm. but it also there are not so many barriers to you know creating a new economic project you know of which there have been many in the detroit area particularly in the city of detroit in recent years Around here, if you want to, like, you know, pave a sidewalk, there's there's a petition drive, and if not a lawsuit. And, you know, it's great that we care this much about our communities, but from my own experience, you know, I lived in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which has seen a huge amount of growth over the last half century. It's changed a lot in ways. When I go back there, I hardly recognize it in some ways, mm. but in its fundamental essence, it's still the same place. Right. It's the right. people, it's the history, it's the heritage, and it's all the stuff that hasn't changed in amongst like the shiny new buildings and, and all that stuff. And I think people would find that if their communities opened up more and if there was more housing and even more apartments and affordable housing and maybe even a nice shelter or something like that, that their community would still be the same place. Mm-hmm. And I think there has to be, uh, and I, I think the fact that we are in multiple interlocking crises is a huge problem, obviously, but it is also a huge opportunity if we all realize that we're in a situation that requires us to really rethink what we're doing. Mm -hmm. That creates a lot, of, a lot of impetus to do something that Vermonters are not good at doing, which <laughs> is rethinking everything about how we're doing, what we're doing, and where we live. Well, it's so, so funny. We... You know, we talk about in, in communities, how we love our communities in Vermont. And yet what we always seem to forget is that communities are made of people. And the general store that is so vibrant is vibrant because there are people. And the library that is vibrant is because there are people who love it and care for it and use it. Same with the schools, same with the sidewalks, same with the neighborhood, same with the you know, the community organizations, the Legion, the the Girl Scouts, the, you know, you name it. And we forget about people. And what you're saying kind of reminds me, I was speaking with a real estate agent in uh, the Upper Valley. So he's dealing with people who can afford, you know, $2 million homes. So he and I are kind of not in the same universe. However, I asked him, I said, you know, the housing market has undergone so much upheaval 
And I've never asked a real estate agent, what is the sign of a, of a truly robust, healthy housing market? And, you know, why do we care? And he said, for him, it's the number of closings. Because when the house goes under contract and sells, that's when money enters the economy. And that's when the painters get called and the plumbers get called and the movers get called and the kids get entered into the school system and so on and so forth. And that that fuels people and it, it fuels local local dollars. And it just it highlighted for me, even though it was such a capitalist <laughs> a response, it reminded me that that's right. It's about the people and how they can participate and how much resources they have to participate in their local community community. So that's where, where my thought went. What thoughts do you want to share with listeners before we head to break? <laughs> You're rolling your eyes at me, John. <laughs> oh, there's so much stuff going on. I mean, one thing that we haven't even touched on, I mean, is the whole crime issue and concerns about crime. And, you know, this plays out very dramatically in Burlington, mm-hmm. where my point of view from a, as a guy from Southeast Michigan, I think Burlington's crime problem is tiny. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, compared to how people feel about their community and their past experience of their community is, it's troubling. And, you know, that's, that's their point of view. And that's how they're going to vote. But but there have been stories from other parts of the state where people in small communities are dealing with more crime and more unsheltered homelessness Mm -hmm. and more substance abuse. And even like, really violent crime. We've had several killings around the state in very, very far flung and very rural parts of the state. Right. And that's changing our communities in dramatic ways mm-hmm. and, and not for the better. And, you know, that is dealing with the opi- opioid crisis, which is a lot worse now than it was several years ago. You know, back in the good old days when Peter Shumlin was governor and he made a whole state of the state address about dealing with substance abuse. And it was this huge dramatic moment in our state's history. And the substance abuse problem is so much worse now than it was then. That was before the, you know, Oxycontin really became a scourge. And before fentanyl became a scourge, fentanyl is so much worse a drug than than many of the other opioids that came before it. And, you know, the fact that there are so many people who are either homeless, unsheltered, or really struggling to stay. Insecure, housing insecure. Yeah. You know, keep a job and keep a roof over their heads and they can't do it or they barely can. Mm -hmm. This all connects together. And it all has to be dealt with somehow. And, you know, like I said, if we take this as a moment, a crisis is also an opportunity. And if we take this as an opportunity, you know, a lot of good people in this state, a lot of good people doing good things uh, at the local level and at the state level. Mm -hmm. And they know what we're facing and they are determined to try to address it. And it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be fun. But we do have the opportunity to make this state a substantially better place for people. Yes. But we've got to get from here to there. And that's that's where we're we're having trouble on that one. So we're going to take a break here on the Montpelier Happy Hour, but stay tuned. John Walters and I will return in a moment. 
Welcome back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I also want to thank Brattleboro Community Television for sharing the video version of our podcast with media centers around Vermont. And just a reminder, you can subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. We always love subscribers. On that note, I do have a temporary notice for folks. Emily, with her role at the State House, is just so overworked, as you heard John saying in the first half, and rightfully so. She is so dedicated to what she does. But as a result, she needs to step away from the podcast for at least during the legislative session. So it will be me. I'm going to ask your indulgence as I kind of shift and pivot, because Emily and I have been doing this together for so long. It, it just feels so natural and it feels weird for her not to be here. But I will shift and I will pivot. And so if there's any topics that folks are curious about, any voices, specific people you'd love to hear interviewed, please send me an email at the Montpelier Happy Hour at gmail.com. The Montpelier Happy Hour at gmail.com, all spelled out. I would love those suggestions as I go forward and, and think of what we're going to do for the rest of the legislative session. It would be fun to uh, inject some new voices and some new energy into the show. So thank you for that. And hey, John, do you, you've been on the show enough. Do you know what we have to remind listeners of right now? Well, the problem is Emily always, Emily knows it by heart. It's the disclaimer and she knows it by heart and she delivers it and now she's not here. So, you know, Maybe you should like excerpt it from a previous show. <laughs> Just pop it in there. <laughs> King, editing. So yes, just so everyone knows, the views and opinions here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of uh, the hosts and the guests. And that's it. Not the radio station, not the platforms, not even the house plants that you might see in the background, or in John's case, all the equipment they've had to move into his office because of a major, major plumbing leak. Dude, you have been dealing with home disasters, flooding from the summer, and then a pipe leak. I just, I don't know, maybe you need to burn some incense to some water gods because they seem to have a finger pointing at your house these days. Well, we've had a lot, lot less bad than many people in our area. You know, we had our flooding basically took out the flooring on the ground floor. And that's all, you know, our furnace worked, our electricity worked, you know, everything continued on as it was, even our Wi-Fi, even our internet. <laughs> um, so we had to replace some flooring, big deal. And we had a plumbing issue. And that happens to a lot of people, too. In fact, we had trouble getting a plumber because there are so many people having plumbing issues. And the plumbers in this area are still catching up with flood-related repairs and recovery and restoration. Mm -hmm. um, you know, which is a reminder that there are a lot of people who have it way worse. And I try to I say that whenever I talk about the issues we have had in our home. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it makes for a very junky looking home office behind me that I've tried to conceal behind, you know, a divider and a blanket and all that. You've but... done well. You've done well. <laughs> <laughs> I did move some stuff out of this room last night just because I knew I was going to be on on camera this morning. So anyway, yes, we've had our issues. Many people have had much worse. Mm -hmm. We were talking at the 
end of the first half of the show about crime and and people's perception of crime in Vermont. And I would agree with you. And I, I think one thing that's happened is sort of the nature of crime, especially in this, my neck of the woods, we're seeing more cars broken into, more homes broken into, things like that. And I think we're used to crime that has more specific victim and perpetrator. And sometimes this property crime can feel really random. What's, sorry, John? Either of which are us. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Bit removed from it and a little bit safe. But yeah, when your car is broken into, that kind of makes it personal. Yeah, exactly. And, but it, it got me, what's... Clearly troubled, you know, then sharing a sidewalk with you, that's, that makes you feel uneasy. And people in Vermont are not used to feeling uneasy. They're used to being comfortable in their communities. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, maybe I just say this because I, I tended to grow up in the hill towns that in my experience, Vermont has a lot of poverty. It's always had a lot of poverty and many of the the struggles that can go along with it. The difference is it's now showing up in downtown Brattleboro or downtown, you know, fill in the blank here. You know, traditionally rural poverty tends to be hidden. And I think now that it's come into view for a lot of people, that is new and, like you said, uncomfortable. And and when you have, you know, in the rural locations where it used to be like down a dirt road and behind some trees and you didn't really see what was going on in that house where there's always a lot of shouting and occasional gunfire and all that stuff, you know, now it's in the downtown or now, you know, somebody's being killed down a quiet dirt road mm-hmm. and suddenly the state police are in the woods near your community where there's never, quote unquote, never been any trouble before. Right. You know, we've got people who are unsheltered, who are setting up tents in parks, and downtown Middlebury has this, and, you know, Burlington has had its share of struggles with it, but so many other communities are going through the same thing on a smaller scale. Mm -hmm. Uh, Creating that sense that Vermont is not the place we used to love and feel safe in. Right. It's not the postcard picture anymore. But that got me thinking... As we do on this show, we talk about the stories that we tell about policy, about people, about communities, about, again, fill in the blank. And I don't know if this pertains so much to the discussion around crime, but I do think it pertains to some of the discussions around housing in that when COVID came through, we at least temporarily, quote unquote, solved a lot of problems. And so now we have that expectation that we can do that or that we have done it. And now when things have hit the rocks again and we're kind of, you know, scampering around trying to, to find solutions, I think they're bumping up against our previous expectations, at least that were built during COVID. What's that for you, John? Does that resonate at all? I think so. And I think that in some very real ways, you know, we did have money to pay for motel vouchers for anybody who was unsheltered. And we had money to begin the rollout of universal broadband, which is a huge deal. And that will help a lot of people in a lot of ways. Um, 
And, you know, we, we didn't really have to worry so much about how we were going to fund this or that. I think in some ways we were a little bit blinded to it. You know, the Scott administration is very tight with the dollar. If it's a state dollar, they were not so tight with the federal dollars. I don't know that they're as tight with local dollars either. <laughs> a lot of the costs that they're, they're offloading from the state budget are laid directly on the shoulders of the communities and the mm -hmm. health system. Mm -hmm. that, you know, we talked about that before where the cost of continuing shelter programs for the homeless would be a lot cheaper than the cost of dealing with the consequences of widespread unsheltering, yeah. whether it be policing or, you know, uh, sanitation or mental health or schools, you know, homeless children. We've got unsheltered children in Vermont, people showing up at the emergency room, people having mental health crises, you know, getting into substance use because they don't have anything else and then committing crimes to, you know, fund their habit. And all those costs are spread around. And, you know, if there's one single pot that gets hit, gets hit the most, it's the, the municipalities, it's the mm -hmm. town and city governments, but you know, it reverberates all around, but it's cheaper for the state. <laughs> Yay. So you saved money. <laughs> but, but it's still problematic. And, and one of the consequences of all of this is, you know, again, we don't feel like Vermont is the place we like to think it always was. Mm -hmm. In some ways that's a, you know, uh, things always feel, look better through the rose colored glasses of memory. Yes, it does. But we're dealing with a lot of stuff and, you know, the federal dollars are gone and we have to figure out how to address our crises without the federal dollars you know mm -hmm. we could unreality part of this whole like the the effect of covid is that we could convince ourselves during the pandemic that if we had a problem it was because of the pandemic right and right it and it would go away when the pandemic went away right and you know it turned out that a lot of our problems had roots well before the pandemic and got worse during the pandemic but they haven't gotten any better since the pandemic ended quote unquote and that allowed us to kind of ignore our problem our structural problems and our systemic problems for a long time but you know our housing crisis predates covid mm -hmm. uh it's gotten worse our school crisis predates covid you know declining numbers declining enrollments and you know more and more costs and unmet infrastructure needs in the schools that pile up over time it gets worse and worse and we didn't address it so a lot of our and substance abuse you know that had that had little to do with covid and in a way the covid was the good period because we did have the federal money you know our economy did really well during the pandemic yeah after the initial shock the initial you know several months federal money started rolling in, you know we suddenly had a huge economic boost time you have a, a burst of public spending, it reverberates throughout the economy. You know, yeah. you help people, you build stuff, and it employs people, and it puts money into the economy. People spend the money. They go to the grocery store, and they buy stuff online, and they go to the hardware store, and et cetera, et cetera. So in some, our, our economy did 
in many ways better during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. in some ways, the pandemic, not the pandemic, the pandemic itself didn't mask our problems, but the financial windfall we enjoyed during the pandemic masked yes. problems. And yeah. we could have addressed them earlier during the pandemic with the federal dollars, I think more effectively than we did. But it's harder to make the systemic change when you're not in a huge crisis. You know, this, like I said in the first half of the show, this, this is a, a sort of a bunch of intertwined crises that also create the opportunity where there is real momentum to make substantial change. Yeah. So all we have to do is, you know, harness that. You know, what you're saying recalls to me an interview I did with the interim CEO at Mount Escutney Hospital in healthcare. And for those who don't know, Mount, Mount Escutney is one of two hospitals that is actually part of the Dartmouth, the larger Dartmouth Health umbrella. And the hospital has done a lot to raise wages in the past few years. But uh, Wynn was telling me a couple things. One, that even though wages have gone up, so hasn't the cost of everything else. This is not a surprise to folks. And so Dartmouth has a staff emergency fund. So if a staff member is like, I'm not going to get paid for two weeks and I have, you know, I can't afford my rent check now. It's just a little pot of money to, to kind of bridge funding is what it is essentially. And that Wynn was telling me, Wynn Brown, the, the CEO, was saying request to that fund have, have gone up among staff. The other thing that's happening is the pediatricians are reporting young families with more complex socioeconomic struggles. And the hospital is looking to hire two behavioral health clinicians. The point that I think has stayed with me that Wynn said, and this I think gets to your point about how do we spend money? And does it look like we've saved it at the state level, but maybe we haven't? Wynn said along the lines of, you know, we, we deal with people and we deal with their health. And so when other parts of the system aren't functioning properly, it falls to the hospitals. You know, so if someone's not making enough money and they can't buy nutritious food, then they're, you know, they're in their doctor's office with chronic whatever, or, or if someone's struggling with housing insecurity, and I just, I, I'm sharing that because I think it is such a great example of how we don't budget holistically. And we don't look at like, okay, if we spend this money at the state level, what is it actually doing downstream? And I don't know what it would take to make that shift, but it does seem like it would give us, going back to that idea of the stories we tell ourselves, it would actually give us some data about how our economy is doing, how our communities are doing, and what they need. <laughs> yes. Okay. John, John's just nodding at me. I don't know if I put him to sleep or if I stunned him with my brilliant intellect. I'm not sure which. <laughs> well, it really is like, where do you go from there? This is what the people in Montpelier are wrestling with right now. And this is mm -hmm. why Emily Kornheiser isn't here today, because she is dealing with, you know, she's been the chair of one of the most important committees in Montpelier for a few years now. And this is by far the most challenging year mm -hmm. for dealing with, you know, the unfunded 
issues that we have and the tax structure issues and you know school funding and property taxes and etc 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 so there's a whole lot going on i think you know it will be interesting to see like a town meeting whether there is a sense of unity and coming together and saying, you know, we got problems, but we love our town and we're going to face them together or whether everybody's going to say, yeah, go away, no taxes, you know, sick the cops on the homeless, you know, crack down on crime. It's going to be interesting whenever town meeting is, um, you know, March this, I think. Yeah. Some places, uh, Barry has put it off into May because their budget is so up in the air. And with this school property tax act that just got signed into law this week, I think, you know, school districts around the state are going to be redoing their budgets frantically and may not be able to, you know, have a budget to present to people at town meeting. So who knows how many people will have town meeting and what it will look like. But coming out of town meeting, we may have a signal about, about where people are at in Vermont and what they are prepared to do or not do or what they want done on their behalf uh, Mm -hmm. to address all these problems that seem to have come home to roost all at once. Yeah. And, and are so interconnected. Yeah. Yeah. I want to segue quickly to town meeting to just say something quickly because a couple of people have said it to me this week. And so it might just be worth putting out there in case other people have questions, I guess. Earlier this week or or late last week, Vermont Public did a story on some communities that are looking to move from floor votes at town meeting to everything being on, on Australian ballot. And a number of friends have come to me and be like, like, why is that a discussion? I don't get it. So just briefly, and John, please chime in if you have extra information. The thoughts are... T- are two ways. Folks who I've talked to who support moving everything to Australian ballot say that it's easier to get more people to participate because they can vote from home, they can vote early, they can vote in person. It's just so much easier to get people in to actually vote. The folks who are concerned about moving everything to Australian ballot say that once it's on the ballot, it doesn't change whatever it is. You can't amend it. You can't change something. You can't ask questions. It's there. It's carved in stone. And so it takes a lot of the power away from the community to make decisions about itself. I don't know which is right and which is wrong. I'm just putting that out there about why we're even discussing it, because that is one thing about the tradition of town meeting is being able to go, if you can get the time off from work, of course, to to actually ask questions and make amendments and change whatever the select board or your town council or whomever have, have put together for you. Underappreciated part of town meeting is that it actually builds support for what the town is doing. Because That's a good point. meeting and you have the town officials and the school officials explain why they're doing what they're doing and why they need money for a new truck and why they you know, they, they ran out of money for plowing, you know, A, B, and C. And and I have seen in my own town meeting a consensus form over mm-hmm. several hours of, of often tedious discussions. <laughs> um, 
because people are getting it firsthand and they are able to ask questions and get answers and they see their town officials as people, as neighbors, instead of as these disembodied names on a ballot. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's, I think there is a lot of value in town meeting. It's easy to sneer at this old, you know, old, crusty old Vermont tradition and we're in the 21st century now, but it does have value. And it's too bad that people's lives are busier now and they can't necessarily take the time or they choose not to because we're all addicted to instant gratification because of our phones and all that stuff. It's harder for us to sit through a town meeting than it used to be, maybe. I don't know. But there is a community building aspect to town meeting and to gathering in one place and meeting people and maybe even talking to people you otherwise would never come in contact with, even though they live in your community. And, you know, the move away from town meeting in a lot of ways is perfectly understandable. It's harder and harder to get people to a town meeting. The fewer people you have at town meeting, the less representative it is. Yeah. And the less com community building you are doing mm -hmm. anyway. Mm -hmm. But it is something about traditional Vermont that we are, it's in transition to something else and we're not sure what it's transitioning to. Mm -hmm. so. Right. It might actually fall under the category of something we may want to preserve. Yeah. Or at least find different ways to do what town meeting used to do and i don't know what that is you know bingo night or sewing circles or um square dancing or something oh yeah uh, speaking ladies of, aid speaking of town uh, I'll, I'll throw in a, a very small climate note that may resonate with where you are oh i have uh, a climate note too i'm wondering if it's the same one we've we have had a weird winter up here in central vermont we have had some cold periods. We've had some massive snow dumps. We've also had massive thaws. Mm -hmm. and, you know, we had flooding in December for which the Governor Scott is seeking a federal emergency declaration, which would be our third of the calendar year 2023. Here in East Montpelier, I live, I live two miles from the state house, but I live on a dirt road. Okay. And normally, you know, the, Winter is the cold month, the ground freezes, and it's solid. And then in the spring, it thaws, and it's mud season, and it's, you know, it's very kind of a little bit dangerous to drive down my road. I know um, mud can be just as slick as ice. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and more treacherous because it's unstable. And, you know, then they have to sort of let things settle and regrade the road. Well, this winter, they have had to regrade my road twice already. Wow. Because we had big thaws and it turned into ruts and you know mud. It was a it was a mini early mud season. The ground did mm -hmm. not completely thaw, but the surface thawed, and there was a lot of water sloshing around in that surface layer. So uh, I wonder what that's done to town budgets around the state. You know, it's a relatively minor consequence of climate change, but it is here and it is happening, and those trucks aren't cheap. No, I, you know what, that was my climate note I was going to bring up to you, that towns are reporting one long mud season and how that has changed how they're approaching road care and how they're approaching their budgets. And yeah, climate change coming home to roost in a very practical dollar and cents way that you can, you can really see. And I agree with you. I'm curious to see what it's going to do to town budgets, too. 
it's probably not going to be good. No. Well, especially for, I remember talking to the, the public works director in Brattleboro a few years ago about dirt roads and mud season. And he was saying that if a dirt road is built well, it tends to not cost a lot to maintain with the exception of mud season. That's when you really need to pay attention to it. So in some cases, dirt roads can be less expensive than a paved road as far as long-term costs and, and energy and everything like that. And so if our dirt roads are going to fundamentally change how they behave through the course of the year, that's going to fundamentally change what public works do. Yeah. It's not going to create a, a five-month-long mud season, but it creates a five-month-long period where you have to be on alert in case you have a little mud season breakout. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and the thing about dirt roads, you know, if I'm going into Montpelier, I drive down about a quarter mile of a dirt road, and the, the city of Montpelier line, it becomes a paved road. Okay. And except during mud season, the dirt road is smoother than the paved road. <laughs> Because the paved road gets frost heaves and it gets potholes and the city doesn't come around as quickly as as you would think they should, but they have a lot on their plates. And I don't know what it's going to do if we suddenly have a mud season that is less constant and much longer. I mean, you know, I've heard a couple of times this during the middle of winter where suddenly the sap is flowing. Yes. And what does that do? I mean, that's kind of a nice little extra maple sugaring season, but what does it do for the trees and what's going to happen in the spring and all that stuff? I don't mm -hmm. know. Uh, I worry about it a lot. Yeah. So, yeah. And not just, not just have something to put on my pancakes. It's something that is integral to both our culture and our environment. And so what would it mean if it's completely disrupted or goes away? Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that very cheery note, John, before we head out, we're really out of time, but I'm just curious, what will you be working on the rest of this week going into next week? What's on your docket? There is so much going on at the state house, and I have focused a lot of my time on the housing and homelessness issue, and rightly so to, my, to me, and I'm not done with it. We have the House and Senate Conference Committee working on the Budget Adjustment Act, which is, you know, how to, how to get through the rest of the current fiscal year, which ends in, in, at the end of June. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are huge questions, huge differences in the House and Senate over providing shelter, whether to continue the motel voucher program a little bit longer or what to do instead of it. And there are no good answers. The House and Senate are in very different places on that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's going to have to be worked out really quick. You know, one little piece of this is the idea of putting a cap on motel voucher rates. And that's the right. cap proposed is like only a little bit more than half what the motels are getting now. So like if they do impose that cap and it might be imposed as soon as March 1st. Okay. The current legislation that passed the Senate, I believe, the cap would be imposed on March 1st. And we're talking like a week from now, mm -hmm. uh, probably by the time a lot of people listen to this. Well, actually, a week from now. I don't think that will stay in the bill because it's impossible. But, you know, if you impose a cap in a week and the motel owners say, uh, sorry, we're not going to take that, then whether you've extended the voucher program or not, you got no motels. Yeah. And what are going to do? You know, we are really facing either in early March, mid-March, early April, a mass unsheltering again. Mm -hmm. 
And so that in the middle of all these swirling crises that we've got that need systemic, huge solutions, we've got the immediate problem of providing shelter for our fellow Vermonters. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some, uh, whenever I write about this, some conservative will pipe up and say, well, aren't a lot of people from out of state coming here because they get a free motel room? And the answer to that question is no. State's own figures show that a very, very tiny proportion of people who spend time in a, in a state-paid motel room are from other states. We're not getting welfare tourism. That's largely a myth anyway, but we're not getting that in this case. And the numbers I've seen, at least locally for Wyndham County, is folks who, again, small number, but even if they are from another state, they're usually ended up in the in Wyndham County because they had ties here somehow. Right. So it's job. not just like, oh, look, Vermont, I'm just going to go to Vermont. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And one thing I would like to point out before we go is about a week ago, the House Human Service, Services Committee had a hearing where they heard from four people who are in the motel voucher program right now, two of whom are in Bellows Falls and one of whom is in Brattleboro. The other mm-hmm. one is in Rutland. When you hear their stories, it really makes it a lot harder to stereotype people. These people are people of value and worth. They are people with their own life experiences. They have experienced ups and downs. They are really smart people. Mm-hmm. You've got to develop survival skills to, to live on the edge like they do. And they are constantly struggling to maintain a place in the voucher program. And they are constantly being told that the program is going to end. And then it gets extended at the last minute. And it makes it a lot harder for them to survive and to rebuild new lives. And these four people, their testimony, I mean, it brought the room to tears on more than one occasion. I mean, I wrote a blog post about it, and that's the, I'm not going to direct you there so that you read my blog. I, I, that's where you can find links to where their, their written testimony is yeah. and the YouTube video of the hearing. I strongly suggest that if you have any interest in this issue, or even if you don't, that you that you check that out and you either read or listen to watch their testimony and you'll get a much more accurate idea of who these people are and the importance of not only keeping them in shelter but keeping them in humane predictable shelter so that they can sustain their lives and get health care and get and hold a job and start to rebuild something because mm-hmm. a lot of these people do if they're just given a chance they can get up off the ground. Just because you're homeless doesn't mean you're gonna be homeless all your life. Right. For most people, it's a transitory period and we just need to get them through it. We need to create more housing, but in the meantime, we need to not throw a whole bunch of them out on the street and have them living in tents, which is what a lot of people are doing right now. And it's a real shame and it's a stain on us as a state, as far as I'm concerned. That's a happy note to end that. Thank you for that, John. I thank you for bringing it back to people because it's easy to talk about policy way up here, but people is really why it matters. So remind us your website. The long name is the Vermont Political Observer. Catchy, I know. I abbreviate it to the VPO, and that's actually the the address, thevpo.org. If you just type the VPO into a search engine, you get me uh, as the the top match. So that's easy to find. 
it's either me or the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra. <laughs> also mind. worth listening to, but you know, not the same thing. Like a nice Strauss waltz. My Twitter handle is the VPO one number one because the VPO is taken up by the orchestra. Well, anyway, thank you, John Walters, for joining us today. As always. You can find the Montpelier Happy Hour at uh, WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. And like I said, folks, I would really love to hear your thoughts on topics or guests for the upcoming weeks. And you can send those suggestions to the Montpelier Happy Hour at gmail.com. Have a good weekend, everyone. Stay safe.